very special talent out of Los Angeles. It's the right hooter. <laughs> This is Ry Cooter live at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. He's accompanied by Chris Etheridge on bass, Richie Hayward on drums, and Steve Ferguson on keyboards. In December 1970, they play four nights in a row at the legendary venue, and they're having a ball. Cooter addresses Taj Mahal, who's somewhere in the audience. They play alimony, going to Brownsville and Pygmy, among others. And they also play an old traditional called Deep Ellum Blues. It's a song you won't find on any Cooter record. Welcome to The Rye Cooter Story, a podcast dedicated to music, the movies, and the career of slide guitar master Rye Cooter. My name is Frank. I'm a video producer, podcaster, and lifelong Rye Cooter fan from Berlin, Germany, bringing you this podcast with a little help from text-to-speech AI. This is episode five of the podcast, and today we're talking about Cooter's second solo album called Into the Purple Valley. It was produced in 1971 and released in early 1972. But before we get into that, we need to talk about some of Cooter's session work. I said in our last episode that we usually do this at the end of each episode, but in this case it seems appropriate to start with the sessions. After all, we have about two years to catch up on. So here we go. If we try to roughly divide Cooter's career into phases, we first have to look at the individual decades. The 60s were the time of the rising suns and session music. The 70s, solo albums. The 80s, soundtracks. And the 90s, world music collaborations. In the new millennium, Cooter reinvented himself as a songwriter with a more pronounced political bent. Of course, all this is only a rough generalization. Naturally, the phases also overlapped. Regarding session music, for example, Cooter often gave the impression in later interviews that by 1970 he had had enough of contributing a musical sound effect with his bottleneck guitar. Therefore, he had begun to make his own records. In fact, he made far more guest appearances in the 70s than in the 60s. It would be pointless, and probably quite boring, to list all the titles here. So we will summarize them as best we can. We covered the Rolling Stones extensively in episode three. Taj Mahal, Arlo Guthrie, Randy Newman, and others are covered in bonus episodes for our Patreon subscribers. Other exciting, interesting, and especially good Cooter performances are covered right here. 
If you're on social media, you may have come across our little videos, the Rye Cooter timeline that accompany our podcast. In them, we try to collect all the facts and figures, including the sessions and rumors that have circulated over the decades. You might want to check it out. Of course, this is always an attempt. In his own inimitable way, Cooter himself once commented on a discography in the program of the Get Rhythm Tour. Anyone who reads one of these things deserves to be misinformed. But at least we want to try to be less misinformed than others. By the way, a wonderful resource for the accountants among you is Rylander's website. It's not complete and sometimes wrong, but at least until the end of the noughties it's the best overview available. You'll find the link in the show notes. The early 70s were a great time in rock music, but they were an especially great time for singer-songwriters. Cooter himself didn't really fit into that category because he wasn't a songwriter in the classic sense. He had no personal themes or messages to put out into the world, but rather reinvented the songs that were personal and important to him. But that didn't stop him from contributing to the albums of these other singer-songwriters. There are about 10 examples from 1970 alone. We'll listen in on some of them here. For Cooter, these were mostly bread and butter jobs. Nevertheless, it is fascinating to hear the tunes on block. In a short period of time, Cooter achieved something amazing in terms of quality and quantity. Let's start with Mark Benno. He had played second guitar on the album L.A. Woman by the Doors before he started his solo career in 1968. The song we're listening to is called Hard Road. It's a hefty country rock tune from Benno's eponymous second album. Cooter played on two songs. Next up is Gordon Lightfoot, one of the greatest and most successful songwriters of the era. His album, If You Could Read My Mind, was his first collaboration with producer Lenny Waronker. Warner Brothers, Regulars, Randy Newman, and Ry Cooter were also on board. Lightfoot's intense title track was a top 10 hit. The album also included the first recording of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee with Cooter on bottleneck guitar. Freedom just another word for Nothing left to lose Nothing ain't worth nothing But it's free Feeling good was easy, Lord When Bobby sang the blues Feeling good was good enough for me Ron Elliott was another musician from the Warner Sphere. His band, the Bo Brummels, had just disbanded, so he produced The Candlestick Maker, his first and only solo album. Ry Cooter played on one song, the gentle country ballad, Deep River Runs Blue. Things will be changing. That we no Cooter played electric and acoustic bottleneck guitars on Crazy Man, a song from Scott McKenzie's album Stained Glass Morning. 
Several layers of guitars make the otherwise rather ponderous song well worth a listen. Mackenzie, basically a one-hit wonder, sang the 1967 anthem San Francisco. Right after Stained Glass Morning, only his second album, he quit the music business. Cooter may not have played on the Everly Brothers' Roots album, but he did contribute to Don Everly's self-titled first solo album. It was a typical Warner Gang production. Scott McKenzie, who we just heard about, played 12-string guitar. Bassist Chris Etheridge and drummers Milton Holland and Jim Keltner were also part of the studio band. Later they became regulars on Cooter's solo albums. There are no exact credits on the album, but it's safe to say that Cooter plays on several tracks. This is Don't Drink the Water, a semi-serious song. You must stand alone, don't drink the water. Don't drink water. Don't drink water. You know. The year 1970 brought not one, but two film contributions from Ry Cooter. As with performance, he was brought in by Jack Nitsche to play on the soundtrack of Watermelon Man, a wacky comedy about racial stereotypes, directed by Melvin Van Peebles. A smarmy liberal racist played by Godfrey Cambridge wakes up one morning to discover that he's become a black man. Largely panned by critics at the time, the film now has its advocates. The music sounds similar to jamming with Edward in some places. Cooter's bottleneck guitar is allowed to experiment in a relaxed way before the honky-tonk piano takes over. much more serious Jack Nitsche project was the 1971 album Crazy Horse. The band of the same name had worked with Neil Young in various lineups and capacities, but had been fired by him after some disagreements. Nitsche, who had produced Young's solo debut with Cooter, joined the band and produced the Crazy Horse album with Bruce Botnick for reprise. Also on board were Danny Witten on guitar and a young Nils Lofgren on others. Witten, who also wrote some of the songs, had been addicted to heroin for some time. Some days he was simply too overwhelmed to play guitar, so Nietzsche brought Cooter into the studio to play slide guitar on three tracks. The result is Cooter at his best. I Don't Want to Talk About It, written by Danny Witten, is a moving ballad of heartbreak. Personally, 
I think Crazy Horse's version is the best interpretation of the song. The whole album is proof that they were much more than a backing band. But in later years, the song was covered much more successfully by Rita Coolidge, Everything But the Girl, and most famously by Rod Stewart. Dirty Dirty, another Witten composition, has a slow, mellow beat and a prominent piano. Witten sings the lead with backing vocals from the rest of the band. It leans more toward the blues, with Cooter's frequent slide guitar solos demonstrating how wonderfully dirty the bottleneck guitar can sound. Our last session album is Little Feet, the self-titled debut from the band that was founded by Lowell George and Bill Payne. The album has often been compared to the rootsy American rock of the band. Legend has it that the song Willin' was the reason for George's departure from Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention because it reeked too much of drugs for Zappa. A demo tape apparently got George and Payne an audience with reprise A&R man Lenny Waronker who of course was a key supporter of Ry Cooter as well. He let them play a handful of songs and gave the newly formed band a record deal on the spot. Staff producer Russ Teitelman, another Warner's acquaintance, was tapped to produce the album. This seemed like a no-brainer since Teitelman and George were close friends, but the two fell out soon after, making the recording process extremely stressful for everyone involved. Another complication was that George, a master of the slide guitar himself had severely injured his hand while tinkering with a model airplane. As a result, he was only able to play guitar to a very limited extent. Bill Payne remembered the clash of the titans. It so happens that Ry Cooter is also at Western Studios making his first album, and Richie Howard is playing drums on that, with Van Dyke Parks on keyboards. So Ry is asked by Russ to come in and play some guitar on the Howlin' Wolf songs we're covering, 44 Blues, and how many more years? Lowell is watching Ry, and Lowell goes out into the studio, and they're both out there blazing away. Lowell's got a bandage on his left hand. He's bleeding all over his guitar. Wonderful stuff. I just sat there and went. Whatever problems we've had up to now, this is just great. It almost sounds like the anticipation of the guitar duel from Crossroads. Van Dyke Parks was also present. He explained, There was nobody allowed to play bottleneck around Rykuder, but Lowell had to play bottleneck. In fact, he did it in spite of this problem, and that pissed off a lot of people. It was a Mexican standoff, at best, it was sibling rivalry. It was eat or be eaten time. They put it on that level, which improved their competitive edge. Testosterone or not, George eventually had to give way to Cooter on the recordings. He played on the aforementioned Howlin' Wolf medley of 44 Blues and How Many More Years. Cooter also played on Willin', a moving ballad, 
both sad and romantic, that brings out the trucker in you. It's about hard work, long hours behind the wheel, and the loneliness that comes with life on the road. Later often covered, even by little feet themselves, this is the purest, most poignant version. A Cinemascope Road movie in just 2 minutes and 23 seconds. I've been warped by the rain, driven by the snow, I'm drunk and dirty, don't you know, and I'm still, oh, I'm still. Out on the road late at night I see my pretty Alice in every headlight Alice, Alice, Alice I've been from Tucson to Tucumcari To Hatchby to Donapaw As it turned out, Little Feet's debut didn't reach any higher positions in the charts. The same could be said for many of the other members of the early Warner Brothers roster. Van Dyke Parks, Randy Newman, Captain Beefheart, Bonnie Raitt, Ry Cooter, they all had little or no success with their early albums. But the great thing about Warners in those days was that the people in charge knew and loved music. They recognized the artistic value of their musicians, and they had staying power. If a record was great, it didn't have to be a hit at all costs. It was still something to be proud of. A lot has changed since then. A gifted musician like Ry Cooter also added value to the studio. His guest appearances enriched many Warner productions. He was also punctual, reliable, and a good team player. In a 1973 interview, Van Dyke Parks even suggested that a former Beatle had personally lobbied Warner boss Mo Austin for Cooter, and Little Feet's Bill Payne had paranoid thoughts about Warner executives breaking up his band to put Richie Hayward in Cooter's band. After all, Rye was their darling. In any case, Lenny Waronker knew what he had. So it was no surprise that Cooter got the chance to make a second album. And as we all know, many more in the years to come. Into the Purple Valley was produced by Waronker and Jim Dickinson, who replaced Van Dyke Parks after he and Cooter had some sort of creative differences. James Luther Dickinson was born in 1941. A jack-of-all-trades on the Memphis music scene, he lent his talents as a producer and keyboardist to such greats as Petula Clark, the Rolling Stones, and the Flaming Groovies. From Into the Purple Valley on, he became a constant collaborator with Cooter, appearing on numerous albums and soundtracks. Recalling his first introduction to Cooter, he told Joss Hutton in 2002, I met him through Chris Etheridge of the Flying Burrito Brothers, and it got to be like a joke. I would talk about Dwayne Allman, and Chris would be like, Dwayne Allman ain't shit compared to Rye Cooter. So I hired Chris for this Brenda Patterson session, my first in Los Angeles, and I said to him, okay, bring me your Rye Cooter. If he's so good, bring him on. Just like I didn't know who he was. Cooter played the first day of the session. He was in the middle of his Into the Purple Valley album, had just fired Van Dyke Parks, and I fit right into the square peg in his round hole. Another faithful companion was Jim Keltner, a famous and sought-after session drummer who played on the solo albums of most of the Beatles. He also drummed for the Traveling Mulberries, J.J. Cale, Eric Clapton, Elvis Costello, and countless others.
He played on 11 Ry Cooter albums, most of the soundtracks, and was also a member of Little Village. Of their first collaboration on Into the Purple Valley, he told the Washington Post in 2003. The first thing that happened was, and it still happens today, he's very intense in a low-key manner. When you're playing or listening back, he listens like you can't imagine. He's got massive ears, hears things that other people don't. As an LP, Into the Purple Valley had a very special cover. It shows a slightly nervous Rykuder at the wheel of a yellow 1939 Buick convertible. Next to him is a beautiful woman who turns out to be Susan Teitelman, his real-life wife. They're driving in the pouring rain. The back of the album shows the exact same setup. But here the sun is shining and they're both laughing. The jacket flips open to reveal a luxurious shot of the two of them standing in front of a classic car with a painted city backdrop behind them. Cooter wears a vintage pinstripe and a yellow Hawaiian shirt, his arm around Teitelman. And as it turns out, the fancy car has a flat tire. It's a stylish three-piece composition, playful and funny. At the same time, it has a wonderful retro feel that fits the music perfectly. When Rolling Stone magazine published a list of the 100 greatest album covers in 1991, Into the Purple Valley came in at number 12. Of the production, Cooter told John Tobler in 1977. I said, well, here are these set paintings. They seem very nice, and they are large, and with good old-time movie key lighting, you could create a pretty good record cover. So it doesn't have to be anything to do with content really at all. It's just that there is a mighty nice yellow car and a nice set painting, and it does coincide with the music in a kind of loose way. That was as far as I thought about it, really. I just enjoyed doing that. Just a little party, really. When asked by Record Collector magazine if he was trying to reclaim some kind of lost American tradition with his early albums, he said, No, I don't think I had those kinds of lofty ideas. You have to realize that I was just so young and backward from Santa Monica and didn't know anything about money or business. I was never thinking beyond what I was going to do when I got to the studio. It was obvious that people were making money and supporting themselves. And that was interesting, because most of the traditional players I'd seen were poor as church mice. They didn't have any money, but what they did have was a rich life because of what they did. And I thought that was good enough. I didn't consider myself in league with some of these people, but I wanted to grab a piece of it and have that life. I just wanted to learn to play my instruments, which is a daunting task. You spend your lifetime trying to do that. Cooter's second album picks up where his first left off. It offers a similar compilation of social criticism, old blues, ironic humor, and reinventions of little-known songs from different eras. It even has the same number of tracks, 11, each more exciting than the last. It kicks off with How Can You Keep On Moving, the equivalent to Guthrie's Do Re Mi from the first album. It was written by musician and publisher Agnes Sis Cunningham, a fact Cooter was unaware of when he adapted the song. He first attributed it as a traditional, but the mistake was corrected on later pressings. Like Woody Guthrie, Cunningham tells the story of Depression-era refugees looking for a place to stay. 
In the late 1930s, California passed laws and posted signs at ports of entry saying no more migration. Armed guards were deployed to enforce the law and turn away migrants. The typical comment was just keep moving. Sis Cunningham took it a step further in her song, asking, how can you keep on moving unless you migrate too? I'll tell you why I'm moving, the reason why I roam is to get to a new location and find myself a home. I can't go back to the homestead, my shack no longer stands. They said I wasn't needed and had no claim to the land. Cooter electrifies the tune and adapts it for the slide guitar. It has a certain country rock feel and a rousing yet satirical march accompaniment, as Rolling Stone magazine put it. About the song's timeliness, Cooter told John Tobler in 1976, A song like How Can You Keep On Moving will always have some kind of relation to something that goes on, because the situation never has really changed very much. In the United States, things seem to change, but really, the people are having the same problems they always did. God knows. Stories, movies, and songs about the outlaw Billy the Kid are a dime a dozen. His real name was William H. Bonney, and he lived in New Mexico and Arizona in the mid-19th century. After being arrested several times for theft at the age of 16, and escaping from jail each time, he became the feared outlaw that newspapers revered. The myth-making was complete when, at age 21, he was sentenced to death, escaped again, and was finally shot in an ambush by Sheriff Pat Garrett. Eight years before Cooter scored Walter Hill's Western The Long Riders, he dedicated himself to the outlaw theme with his adaptation of the cowboy ballad Billy the Kid. The song dates back to the 1920s. It was written by a prolific folk composer named Andrew Jenkins, also known as Blind Andy, and first recorded by Vernon Delhart. Here is his 1927 version. I'll sing you a true song of Billy the Kid. I'll sing of the desperate deeds that he did. Way out in New Mexico, long, long ago, when a man's only chance was his own 44. Cooter loved the lyrics, but wanted to change the music. So one day, he started finger-picking the song on the mandolin. It was completely spontaneous, something that was possible in the studio at the time. The studio, Cooter later said, was like a laboratory, a place of discovery. It's a very simple song, mandolin, a rhythmic tap, and electric guitar. But it is precisely in this simplicity that the whole thing unfolds a tremendous power. Fair Mexican maids play guitars and sing Songs about Billy, their boy bandit king Before his young manhood had reached its set in He'd a notch on his pistol for twenty-one men
The next song also features a perfect interplay of mandolin and electric guitar. But unlike the minimalist ballad, it's a full-blown rock song. Or as Rolling Stone called it, the rocker of the album. The Money Honey Band consists of Cooter, Jim Keltner on drums, Jim Dickinson on piano, and Chris Etheridge on bass. The female vocals are sung by Gloria Jones of Tainted Love fame. At some point during production, Dickinson had come in to replace Van Dyke Parks as producer. Dickinson and Cooter first worked on a rented piano at Cooter's home on Ocean Way in Santa Monica. Dickinson called it a minimalistic little house. In his autobiography, he described the subsequent recording session for Money Honey. The first order of business was overdubbing my piano on an existing track, replacing three tracks of Van Dyke piano. He had a unique convoluted technique that sounded like turn-of-the-century like classical parlor piano. Lenny instructed me to play across a dramatic stop in the middle of the brilliant Jim Keltner drum track. It was in B-flat. I killed it, blasting across the drum stop like a runaway train. Lenny said, that was the best save I've ever heard. The drum track sounded like it was exploding, like the drummer had kicked the drums down a long winding stairway. I loved it. Keltner had taken a giant step into rock and roll. It was like working with a drum god. Money Honey is a humorous song about a man who is about to be evicted from his apartment because he owes rent. Instead of helping him out, his girlfriend turns her back on him. Because she'd rather have a man with money too. It was written by Jesse Stone for Clyde McFadder and the Drifters in 1953. It was a huge hit and has been covered many times. Most famously by Elvis Presley in 1956, but also by Little Richard in 1964. Surprisingly, each new version seems to try to outdo the previous one in speed, until Cooter finally slows things down, similar to old Kentucky Home on his previous album. Here's a little medley, first McFadder, then Elvis, then Little Richard, and finally Rye Cooter. the grim problems of everyday life in the U.S., out into the world, and into world politics, you could even say that the next song marks Rye Cooter's first foray into the realm of world music. More specifically, the realm of Calypso. The song is called FDR in Trinidad. It's about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States. In 1936, on his way back from a peace conference in Argentina, he stopped in Trinidad. 
It was the second of four visits FDR made to the Caribbean island. Incidentally, only Barack Obama would become the second U.S. president to visit Trinidad, the land of the hummingbird. FDR's visit inspired Fitz McLean to write a song. It was first performed in 1937 by Raymond Cuvito under the name Attila of the Hun. We are privileged to see the democratic president of the great republic with his charming and genial personality and his wonderful urbanity. We were struck by his modest style and was intrigued by the famous Roosevelt smile. No wonder everybody was glad at the great honor shown Trinidad. Cooter first heard the song through his wife's uncle. He copied the old 78 onto a cassette and gave it to Van Dyke Parks, who was supposed to record the song. But Parks didn't, which prompted Cooter to do it himself. Ironically, Parks did record the song a year later. When asked by Zigzag Magazine if FDR in Trinidad was an ironic song, Cooter replied, Well, it must be, because people down there, being so smart with their topical music, they have that twist to everything. There's a twist to it. Obviously, in the last verse where he talks about making the world a safe place for humanity. It's hard to say. I mean, I think that was an optimistic time. They were really excited about the fact that Roosevelt went down there, and it was probably a very important event. But the guy who wrote it must have had some ideas about politicians and the idea of conferences and speeches, and what that all adds up to. Cooter's opening is very simple, with just vocals, acoustic guitar, and a little percussion. Roosevelt came to the land of the hummingbird. Shouts of welcome were heard. His visit to their island is bound to be an epoch in local history. Definitely marking a new era, keeping Trinidad in America. In the middle, there is a transition to the calypso rhythm. Guitar, mandolin, and some soft percussion by Milt Holland and Fritz Richmond on tub bass. At this point begins a musical journey that will take us to Joseph Spence, Gabby Pahenui, and many others. Rolling Stone magazine called the song a hilarious morsel of calypso pre-reggae nonsense. The next song, Teardrops Will Fall, is a gentle rhythm and blues ballad about heartbreak. It originated in 1958 as a doo-wop song recorded by Dickie Doo in the Don'ts. If you've never heard it before, this may come as a surprise. When I fact, that wasn't the version Cooter was familiar with. When asked by Uncut Magazine in 2014, he said, Wilson Pickett recorded it after he left the Falcons. That's how I knew it. The label would have been looking round for material. That's how it worked then. Songwriters wrote and singers performed. There were plenty of other people who liked that stuff as much as me, but I was the one signed to Warner Brothers. I don't know why they signed me because to sell records you had to look and sound a certain way, which I didn't. The moment I realized how it worked was when an A&R man asked, when are you going to get a pair of leather pants? Usually they aren't so explicit, but they think it all right. 
and there was I fooling round with lead belly songs. Or, in this case, with a Wilson Pickett song, his version sounded like this. For Cooter's version, Milt Holland played vibraphone on a huge African thumb piano with a Chinese gong at the end. Jim Dickinson put a female trio on backing vocals, although Cooter had initially preferred male singers in the old quartet tradition. This added a dramatic contrast, and Dickinson called it probably the best rhythm track I ever produced. Cooter brings an emotion to the song that is largely absent from the other recordings. It's moving and beautiful. Moving and beautiful are exactly the right words to describe Denomination Blues by George Washington Phillips. It's a minimalist gospel blues song from 1927 that hasn't lost any of its touching power. I want to tell you tonight you'll fight. Every man don't understand the Bible like, but that's all now. I tell you that's all. But you better have Jesus. I tell you that's all. Well, denominations has no right to fight. They ought to just treat each other right. Phillips gently mocks several Christian denominations for their particular obsessions. He urges people to stop fighting and treat each other right. According to him, this, and nothing more, is the message of Jesus. Cooter transforms the simple blues into a complex composition similar to his treatment of pig meat on the first album. It begins with Jim Dickinson on a Celeste, a keyboard instrument that can sound like a glockenspiel. Cooter's voice is relatively high, the singing somewhat strained. Rolling Stone magazine called it bizarre. Is it serious? Is it irony? Hard to say. For Melody Maker magazine, it's all religious satire. Then the horns come in, and the sound becomes heavy and old-fashioned. Well, the denominations have no right to fight. They ought to go on and treat each other right. And that's all. I tell you, that's all. You better have Jesus, huh? I tell you, that's all. Side two is where the album really takes off. On a Monday is one of the great Rye Cooter songs, a multi-layer guitar firework with exactly that unmistakable sound that makes Cooter so unique. On a Monday, I was arrested. On a Tuesday, I was locked up in jail. Once again, Cooter covers a song by the great Lead Belly. A supposedly simple blues by a convict, it is actually quite sophisticated. The song offers many possibilities for interpretation, but in the end, it keeps at least part of its secret. The lyrics tell the story of a man who is arrested on Monday and taken to jail where he's locked up. On Wednesday, his trial is held, and on Thursday, 
no one is willing to bail him out. He talks about the burden of the stripes on his shoulders and the chains on his legs. Lead Belly first recorded on a Monday in the late 30s. It is not quite sure if he wrote the song himself. You probably borrowed parts of an African-American song called Po' Boy. The lyrics vary here and there. Some versions include the additional verse. On a Tuesday, they caught me with a pistol. On a Wednesday, I testified. On a Thursday, they gave me six months hard labor. On a Friday, I started my time. The first big question is, who are the yellow women to whom the narrator will not bring a pail? And what exactly is meant by that? To that end, it's important to note that an early lead belly version was titled Yellow Women's Doorbell. It contains the line, and I ain't gonna ring them yellow woman's doorbell. In the days of slavery, yellow women were usually the direct result of a plantation master's sexual union with a female slave. Field slaves looked down on these light-skinned slaves who usually worked in the house. After slavery, many of these light-skinned yellow women turned to prostitution as a means of support. So in the early version, the narrator would no longer be able to visit the yellow women because he is in prison. Maybe his visits played a role in his arrest, or in the problems he had with his companion. Later the line became, and I ain't gonna bring them yellow women no pale. It's less explosive, but more ambiguous. Has the yellow woman now become a fellow prisoner? Back then, it was not uncommon for prostitutes to end up in prison. He may be a water boy, but he is too exhausted to carry her the bucket, the pail. After all, he is almost done. The second question is, why does he have to go to jail at all? No crime is mentioned in the song, but it's quite likely that he hurt someone after his baby kicked him out of her apartment. Interestingly, we learn about her only at the end of the song, almost as an afterthought or a kind of late confession. Maybe the crime happened on Sunday after they sat down and talked. The following Monday, he was arrested while she pawned all his clothes. When Johnny Cash adapted on a Monday as I Got Stripes in 1959, he preferred to leave out the yellow women altogether. But Cooter was probably less influenced by Cash's version than by Lead Belly's. Instead, he dedicated the next song to a Cash original, Hey Porter. Hey Porter, hey Porter, it's getting light outside. This old train is puffing smoke and I have to strain my eyes. But ask that engineer if he will blow his whistle, please. Cause I smell frost on cotton leaves and I feel that southern breeze. Hey Porter originated as a poem Cash published in a military magazine while in the Air Force. It was more or less the declaration of a homesick boy. In the song, he can't wait for the train to take him back south. All he wants to do is get home and breathe that southern air. Again, Cooter's main stylistic approach is to slow the song down considerably. He turns it into a bluesy piece with a mandolin dominating. Hey, Paul. Hey, Paul. 
much long will it be till we cross that Mason Dixon line? He's accompanied by Jim Dickinson's soulful piano and Fritz Richmond on tub bass. Richmond creates an eerie tone that resembles the sound of a moving train. In the middle of the song, there's a long instrumental passage where the mandolin seems to express the pure joy of coming home. In his excellent 1999 portrait of Cooter, Alex Wilkinson uses Hay Porter as an example of the complexity of Cooter's thinking and reasoning. If you ask Cooter how he happened to record a certain song, A Porter, for example, by Johnny Cash, you might say that what makes modern American music different from the music of other cultures is the jukebox, and that before World War II, during the jazz band era, that is, musicians made records to promote their performances so that people would come to see them. Records were novelties, almost. Radio hadn't yet embraced regional music, and there weren't that many radio stations anyway. After the war, people developed the habit of going to bars and cafes and feeding the jukebox. And if you were a musician and wanted your record to be chosen from among the 50 others offered, you had to come up with something conspicuous and memorable. And so the music of the period, Johnny Cash, say with Big River or Hey Porter or Ring of Fire, was very poignant and microcosmic in its compression of experience. The best songs were honed to something that resembled miniature masterpieces. Proof of this was that nothing else was going to come into your mind while you're listening to them. And meanwhile, everyone was working to get a hit, even Howlin' Wolf, even Muddy Waters. And these great records were made in very informal settings, hotel rooms sometimes, and the offices of record companies where the employees pushed the furniture to the walls at the end of the day and set up microphones. And so the records had a warmth and informality that has surely been lost, because at a certain point technology overtook sentiment about it happen, there was so much money involved, and so he began to hear more of the equipment used in making the record and less of the music, more of the science and less of the feeling, and you can't go back now, no, you can't, you sure can't, and the only time you can perhaps is to a place like Cuba, where they still have beautiful music, and not so much of a technological society. Next up is Great Dream from Heaven, a Joseph Spence tune. The only version I could find was performed by Edith Pender, Geneva Pender, Raymond Pinder and Spence in the Bahamas in 1965. Cooter would turn the song into an instrumental. When mother and father forsake me, I know the angel heaven is calling me home. Thank God I can sing a song of his love. But I know someday I'll be singing. Now, Joseph Spence's importance to Rye Cooter's career cannot be overstated. Spence was born in the Bahamas in 1910. He had various jobs, but Cooter usually introduced him as a bricklayer down there in the Bahamas. In music circles, he was known for his intense guitar playing, which sometimes sounded like two guitars playing at once. Spence's repertoire included calypso, blues, folk music, and sacred songs. He played a steel string acoustic guitar, and nearly all of his recorded songs feature a guitar and drop detuning. He created a unique, easily identifiable sound and has been called the felonious monk of folk guitarists. Cooter has consistently cited him in interviews as one of his main sources of inspiration. As he told Record Collector in 2014, 
Spence broke through the kind of mechanical finger-picking that everybody was doing. Everything I'd seen before seemed so repetitive, but he didn't do it that way naturally. He was all about syncopating and playing freely. And that was a whole other sound. A guy gave me that record and said, You're gonna like this. After I heard it, I thought, Okay, that's the door. Go towards that and life will be better. In the course of our journey through Cooter's career, we will meet Joseph Spence a few more times, for instance on his album Jazz and on some of the soundtracks. The next song, Taxes on the Farmer Feeds Us All, is another traditional ballad that falls into the Depression era category, but it is actually even older than that. It dates back to at least the 1890s, and it points out that in the end, everyone lives off the farmer. Everything depends on him, and yet he leads a precarious existence, in debt and in poor living conditions. Fiddlin' John Carson recorded a version of the song in 1923, then another, a parody, ten years later. Pete Seeger followed with his version in 1956, but it was probably this 1959 version by the Lost City Ramblers that introduced Rye Cooter to the song. The farmer is the man, farmer is the man, Buys on a credit until fall. Then they take him by the hand and they lead him through the land. And the merchant, he's the man that gets it all. Jim Dickinson came up with the suggestion that Cooter use a pump organ or harmonium on the track. Cooter was delighted, Dickinson recalled in his memoir. Fred Metting wrote, Cooter's version of the populist agrarian celebration of the farmer's importance and protest over his economic plight is an electric yet stately piece of music. Jim Dickinson's piano and Cooter's electric slide are central to this full-sounding piece. Then they take him by the hand And they lead him from his land And the merchant is the man who gets it all The album ends with a classic Dust Bowl ballad, Woody Guthrie's Vigilante Man. Cooter explained the historical background to John Tobler and Stuart Grundy. California had always been a state full of big farms, and agro-business was running the government. So when these poor Okies and Arkies came out, they found this tight block, with scab prices being paid. They couldn't support themselves, and were caught in a mesh of being manipulated as cheap labor against each other. To keep order, the corrupt local police departments deputized vigilantes, who were just hired thugs wearing badges, to carry out the will of the big farm conglomerates. They would bust everybody up now and then, keep them terrorized, and prevent them from getting together. Because the one thing agro-business in California feared was a farm workers' union, 
since cheap labor is only cheap and able to be manipulated when it's not organized. Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen that vigilante man? I've been hearing his name all over the land. Rainy nights down in the engine house. Cooter keeps the song deliberately simple. His plaintive vocals, even more haunting than Guthrie's, the beguiling acoustic bottleneck guitar, much like that of Dark is the night on the first album, plus a quiet rhythmic tapping. It's a strong, dignified conclusion that would become part of Cooter's standard live repertoire. Cooter, wherever I sang that song, especially in the 60s, when Vietnam was a problem, the dope culture was staking its claim and the youth culture was stating its case, it was well received, like any song that's about the revolt against institutional order. Those songs have a life because of that. And I still get a lot of requests for that song today. Because there's always someone who's the vigilante, and someone else who's getting their head beat open, wherever you may be. Into the Purple Valley was released sometime in January 1972, although some sources give February 8 as the official date, so the exact date seems to have been lost to history. While far from a mega success, it charted much higher than its predecessor, peaking at number 113 on the Billboard 200 and garnering considerable critical acclaim. Record Collector wrote that the album reached deep into tradition, unearthing neglected treasures from America's past and reshaping them for the post-Woodstock generation. Melody Maker said, The music is imbued with a sense of period, in that all the songs are drawn from very specific eras, to make the record a kind of Pan-American tour, rather in the manner of the band's second album and Dylan's self-portrait. Cooter's choice of material is vastly intelligent, suiting both his own delivery, cracked non-voice, marvelously fluent guitar, and the overall picture. It remains only to say that Rye Cooter treats these songs with the respect their history demands, and the performances are immaculate. As a result, Into the Purple Valley is a wonderful record, with as many levels and as much enjoyment as you care to look for. Please hear it. Rolling Stone magazine wrote, As for Rye Cooter, it's good to know that there are musicians around who are still dealing with reality. And it's good to know that he's still doing those terrific, uncanny things with his instrument. Good record. Cooter, who is usually quite critical of his own albums, was also quite pleased with the result. He told John Tobler and Stuart Grundy, A fair amount of money was spent on that album in terms of promotion, which resulted in a lot more visibility. But that presented certain problems. Because you can't forge a career based on social-type music in an era, when that music is becoming less and less current and less interesting to people. But I still thought it was the sort of stuff I should do, and I still think it's good, but it got to be a little cryptic after a while. 
And that brings us to the end of episode five of the Rye Cooter story. Thanks for listening. In our next episode, we'll talk about Boomer's story, Cooter's next solo album. It was released later that same year. Meanwhile, you'll find us on social media or you can visit our website. As usual, you'll find the links in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast, then please head on over to Patreon slash The Rye Cooter Story and become a member. Membership comes with all sorts of benefits, including bonus episodes on Cooter's important guest or session albums. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Bye.